We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Light Years Podcast. Samus Fandiari here. Andy Liu, MIA. Um, no, Andy's out this week for personal reasons. Um, and so I have a stand-in guest, someone equally as uh, flagrant a Steph Curry fanboy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, Danny LaRue from The Athletic. Danny, how you doing? Doing well, Sam. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm Sorry, do, are, do you qualify as, as flagrant a Steph fanboy as, as Andy, or is that just like a different category? We can't even. Get no, it. I mean, I, I think what's what's funny about it was I was advocating for Steph Curry long before most other people were. So at that point, it probably was perceived that way. But as things got completely crazy, it got. I, I'm not going to say it got past me because I was saying he was the best player in the league and all that, but or at least the best offensive player in the league. But. That's kind of the thing about when you are a national person who is based in the Bay Area and who covers the Warriors ostensibly, whether it's true or not, you get the reputation as being biased towards that. And some people will say it's true. Some people will say it's perception. I don't really care, I guess is probably the right word for it. But I try to be honest and Steph Curry's amazing. So I will give him credit. Yeah, I mean, that's. Obviously, anyone who is uh, covering the Warriors in the Bay Area was first to see kind of how special Steph could be or kind of the impact he could have on a game before it went national. So, I mean, but that's the way it's it should go with, with any player, really, unless you're talking about the once-in-a-generation national profile and high school type of player. Um, actually, that that takes me down memory lane. Because I'm trying to think back to the um, – were, were you in the – I absolutely hate Keith Smart for benching him for AC Law Camp. I believe that was you. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was more concerned about AC, about 
Keith Smart potentially like murdering Monte Ellis by playing him too many minutes. Like that was my bigger beef. But yeah, I mean, I I, I wrote I, I mean, people can go back. My the one of the fun things about having covered the, the league and the team for ten years, my all of my stuff is available. And I think I wrote something about how it was Steph Curry's team. If memory serves, I want to say that was in January or February of his second year. I said, you know, Monte is an afterthought at this point. It's Steph Curry's team, and all we're doing is waiting until that happens. And, you know, that was, it ended up being prescient. I mean, but it was one of those things that I understand why people didn't feel that way at the time, because especially like Monte was, he was a fan favorite. He scored a bunch of points, but it was just this idea. I think, I think honestly, Monte reason- also fit like the archetype of what everyone thought of as a star in like right, the, right, right. the Kobe and, era and everything. Right. And I think that the other part of it was as somebody who came at it from a national background, like I was seeing a lot of good basketball played. And when I watched Monte, I'm like, Oh, this isn't how it's happening. And so like, it, it, so, so you could get into those sorts of circumstances where like Monte was one of the best players that the Warriors had for a long period of time, but the way he was good wasn't necessarily conducive to a team actually winning a ton of basketball games. So that was a disparity that I saw. And I'm like, okay, Steph, he, he you know, he does things differently, but I think that'll work well. And he's become, you know, I, I think the part of this, and this is, this is a, I'll, I'll do a slight, a slight hijack here. I think people underrate how much NBA players improve during their career. Because, like, I don't think anybody, you know, even Don Nelson and Larry Riley saw this coming. And that's credit to Steph. Credit to Draymond Green has improved more as an NBA player than almost anybody I've ever seen. And a lot of those guys. And so you can, I'm sure, value, talent evaluators can assess that in part. But it you can't see it all when a guy's 21 years old if that's when he comes to the league like Steph did. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I I also, it was the second half of Steph's rookie year where I was like, okay, this is the guy they should build around. And just from an emotional standpoint, I, I tried to give every um, angle of like, they, they got to figure out some way to make Steph and Monte work, you know, didn't didn't want to see the writing on the wall that like, hey, they're both like kind of 6'2 on a good day. Um, and it's not, you know, that, that's just not usually a formula that wins. But with all that said, I think I in my even at, at the end of Steph's first year, like my best case for him was like an all star who could maybe be the second best player on a contender. What he turned himself into, like beyond any of my wildest imaginations, there. I don't know what yeah, you're talking about. That, yeah, but. oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with the way that the three pointer got unleashed in the game around that point. I mean, I, I think that him being at the at the forefront of of that going in another direction was something that I didn't see coming. You know, I saw that he was skilled in this, but I didn't realize how valuable that skill was about to be. And maybe I should have. You know, I I think I'd sound I would have sounded a lot smarter at the time had I. But, you know, that that's the way some of these evolutions come. You know, like I saw the pace thing coming, but the idea of guys just pulling up from three as frequently as they do and also just the the, the thing that Steph does, and obviously we give credit to guys like Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon for doing this too, but right. being able to take shots from significantly beyond the arc, because you have if, if a player is, can take shots from five feet out, you have to defend them from five feet out. And there's a lot of value afforded to a team there as well. Well, and it's just like the best three-point shooters before Steph would make two to three a game and take, I don't know, five to seven. And that was considered a ton. Like he's he just completely changed what 
what seemed possible. It's like someone coming along and all of a sudden hitting like 90 home runs a season in baseball. Like it doesn't seem possible right now. He just kind of pushed the whole envelope on it. So, I mean, I don't fault anyone for not seeing it. It's just weird now when people are still fighting against it, but it's few and far between. Yeah. And I mean, there are people always, I mean, who either glorify in certain circumstances, it's when they played and other ones, it's their formative years as a fan. And who are reluctant to expand their definition of what is good basketball or what is great play. And that's hard. I mean, that's just never been the way that I've seen sports. And I think, you know, I hope that is true when I'm 40 and 50 and 60. If people are still paying to listen to me at that point, I think it will be because of that. But the idea of kind of crystallizing anything that is evolving at a certain point in your life just seems counterintuitive, especially if you're a job, you know, if you're a fan, you can prioritize whatever the hell you want. Like, that's fine. Yeah. I'm not, I'm never going to tell somebody how to be a fan, but if you are an analyst being like, Oh, well, no team shooting a bunch of threes can win the title. Well, that's, that's definitely wrong. And even if you want to like point to the Warriors, the Cavs shot a bunch of them when they won too. Yeah. And, um, I want to I want to say I agree with you, but I I have more and more get off my lawn tendencies these days, um, and I'm just in my mid 30s. So, um, but actually, someone who kind of fits that, um, and it kind of transitioned to the first thing I want to talk to you about um, was well, Jokic on the Nuggets. I mean, what I was going to go into is like who do you actually think is the second best team to the Warriors in the West? But Jokic is someone who kind of strikes me as that way. Where like my initial impression is you you're never going to win anything with a big man who's that slow. But now I'm kind of intrigued by like, can they build a roster that takes away his obvious weaknesses enough to actually be a contender? Because the stuff he does is so wholly unique. And obviously he is incredibly talented that it's worth trying to. Yeah, it's definitely worth trying. And I'll draw a little bit of a line between the regular season, and the playoffs. Like I'm not, totally sold that a player with his limitations and Jokic has gotten way better at moving and reacting and everything like that. So maybe he can blur that line, but especially because like, if if you want to compare the idea with Jokic defensively was always kind of something like Marcus soul, like Marcus soul, he was probably never going to get to that point because Marcus soul wanted defensive player of the year. But the idea of kind of not all the way there from a body perspective, but a very smart guy who has, good length and Jokic doesn't have the same tools as Marcus Gasol but that that idea and the smartest thing that Denver did along those lines was getting Paul Millsap because Millsap might have got not, him three years too late though yeah yeah but I mean beggars can't be choosers I mean there aren't that many players as capable as he is on both ends of the floor that ever become available so right. that's they they were fortunate even if they weren't as fortunate as they would have liked to be not everybody can get Kevin Durant in 2016 Sam <laughs> I think you're aware of that. But so getting Millsap really does help help there. And I'm skeptical a little bit that it's going to play in the playoffs because you think about some of the stuff that these teams can roll out there, like teams that can go five out or close to it. And Jokic is way better defensively. He's already, I think this year has been better defensively than I expected him to be at his best. You know, like whatever that right. time, I would have guessed that would probably be around 26, 27. And he, he's better than that, but there still are teams that can exploit it. But what makes Denver interesting as a playoff team is I think that there's been a miscalibration that's happened a little bit over the last few years, which is this idea of like defensive teams 
being really good in the playoffs. And I think there there's there's a basic threshold that you also have to be competent on offense. Right. Ideally, you have to be great on offense. And th- it's been kind of screwed up because, A, the Warriors have been great on defense, but they're not known for it, so they don't get the credit for being a great defensive team. And, B, Cleveland has run through the East while having a bad defense most years. So, But if you really look at it like Houston, that's why I thought, well, I was banging the drum the whole year last year saying they're special because they could defend. And with the Nuggets... They show some signs of like, oh, maybe they can get there. And I definitely think they can get to the conference finals. But that next level of like, oh, can they put a scare into really, really great teams? Like not just necessarily the Warriors, but like the Warriors are one, but Toronto or somebody like that. And you have to be able to stop them and get yours. And I think they'll be pretty close to that, but maybe not all the way there immediately. Yeah, I kind of feel like they're still a roster in flux with that sort of stuff. I'm just kind of intrigued to see what they can do. Obviously they're going to make the playoffs this year. They should have made them last year, but things happen. Um, and you know, I just, I just don't know at this point. Um, they obviously have the best record in the West, uh, aside the Warriors. Um, but if, if you were to say who is the second best team in the West or who you think is most likely to challenge the Warriors, who would you go with? Wow, it's tough because nobody really stands out yet. I mean, I I think people are understating that Houston could still get back there. They're not there right now. I mean, let's let's make that abundantly clear. They're not. But if we're if I'm framing this in terms of who will be there in mid-May, I would be thinking about off the top of my head four teams. So the Nuggets are one because they can score a lot and their defense is pretty good. The Rockets, because they have that ceiling. I mean, Chris Paul can't be what he's been so far, but right. I mean, he's still an immense. By the way, Eric player. Eric Gordon has been disgustingly oh my God. terrible. That's the yeah. one that I don't know how he's kind of gotten mixed in in the whole in the whole fold because he, um, I mean, he played like a borderline All Star last year. I mean, he was never going to make it, but I mean, he was a highly efficient, reasonably high volume guy, and now it's like, well, I mean, he's basically shooting Marcus Smart percentages. It's really bad. Right, and I think there is a little bit of a, a, a worry about doing that through 30 games. There are guys right. who are awful through 30 and figure out. Like I had this, granted this is a smaller sample size, but I, Alan Crabb was so bad at the start of the year, and I was I kept on thinking he was still doing poorly, and he's like 38% on the year. So it, it can course correct. Clay Thompson is an amazing example of this at various points in his career one right. way or the other. But yeah, I mean, and that's the thing with Gordon, with Chris Paul, with a lot of these guys, especially with the personnel losses they had. The margin for error is so tight with the Rockets that if Chris Paul takes a half step back, if Eric Gordon takes a half step back, either of those guys, they're just so much less dangerous. And the other team that deserves it is the Thunder. The Thunder, their defense will travel. Their defense is great. I have no questions whatsoever there. But they are not a particularly hard team to defend. And I mean that in a couple different ways. One is they generally will be playing at least one guy outside of a big that you don't have to have a guy on them every second, you know, like that, that you get that extra defender because whether it's Robertson or Terrence Ferguson or Hamadou Diallo, whatever way they want to go, they don't have that fifth guy and it's going to be really hard for them to get him. And then the second part is they don't have a great collection of players outside of Russ and PG who can really create the initial scene. And like, this is a part of why DeMarcus Cousins could be interesting for the Warriors. And so basically, if Russ is having an off night, or if the Warriors, theoretically, let's say them, if they just play off him and say, hey, shoot 50 jump shots, he'll take he'll take as many as he can. 
in those circumstances, I think their offense will just stagnate. And that happened a lot last year in the playoffs. And I know people blame Mello, blame their defense, all these other things. But I'm way more concerned about their offense than anything else. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about them. If you if you could tell me Russ has actually turned a corner in terms of getting a little more discipline with his shot selection, I would buy them as the second best team. But I've seen this way too many times. Just throwing out a number, they are... 12 and one when he takes 18 or less shots and basically the same type of thing. I think it's nine and one if he takes four or less threes. So basically if he just plays under control and takes what the defense gives him, even if it means he's going to have like a 15 shot night, they're pretty dangerous when he starts going hero ball mode and taking shots that he really has no business. You know, it's a different story. They become a 500 team. You know, some nights he gets hot. Sometimes he doesn't, but he takes the whole team out of rhythm. And, I mean, credit to him. He's been better about it this year. But it's like, I've, I I don't know. I've, I've watched him for 10 years. I know he's going to get in an intense playoff game. And I just, it's hard for me to imagine he's not going to start chucking. Right. I mean, him deferring, it seems, there will be times that maybe he defers to Paul George. But remember, Paul George's playoff history is not particularly sterling either. Even though he tried to give himself a nickname, yeah. that that isn't that isn't quite the. Thing. I will and give I, him I, I this. Will, he did give I him love the. Paul um, he did call himself playoff P and then go off for what like thirty eight. It's just he was terrible after that game. Yeah, and I mean I love Paul George. I think he's an underappreciated player in terms of the scope of the league. Right. But if we're talking about can that guy get his in the playoffs when the other team's best, you know, three four defender is going to be on him. Well, we'll see. I, I mean, I, and a lot of the teams in the West have one guy. They might not have two. Maybe there'll be some opportunities for someone else. But I don't think teams freaking out about Jeremy Grant beating them. And yeah, he's been better shooting, but he doesn't create a ton other than, you know, offensive rebounds and things like that. And I like Jeremy Grant. Again, the, the, that's what's so hard about the Thunder. They have a lot of guys that I like, but the theory of their team when you face another opponent who has elite talent f- f- seven times potentially in a row it just feels like they don't have enough wrinkles there to, to really make it work. Now I, mean, I could be wrong. It's they the have same, a lot of talent. I mean, it is Go the ahead. same team. They've kind of, it's the same concept they've run out for what in all of Sam Presti's era. Like they're probably the most athletic team in the league. Still, they're definitely the most physically overwhelming. Like, I, I don't know if there's a team who has more length and size or the combo of like size and athleticism at every position. So that's kind of always their strategy, but it's all the same shortcomings, and it's just switching kind of, you know, well, yeah, and for I mean, Paul George. And, and we've seen it over the last couple of years that, sure, that, that stuff all helps. And, I mean, if you if you, anybody who doubts that, go watch games two, th- or two, three, and four, or whatever it was, at the Western Conference Finals in, uh, in 2016. I mean, you can see what that can do, but skill level, passing, shooting, those things are really important if you're facing a team that cannot be entirely overwhelmed. And I think that's the problem that they've run into is that they're, they're really ridiculous in those elements, but they're not overpowering all of the time and they don't have enough to fall back on. It's, you know, it's kind of like that basketball player who has one like really good move. Maybe it's like a left to right crossover or something. And then when somebody starts playing that move, they just don't have as many counters. Like that's, that's my concern with the thunder even though I like a lot of what they what they do as a regular season team because that variety, lack of variety doesn't hurt them. Yeah, so that, that kind of brings me back to who I think will end up being the second-best team in the West, I mean, assuming the, the bracket shapes out this way, which is the Lakers, um, and adding to just the kind of the LeBron legend 
in that way, you know, goes to a team that wasn't even in the playoffs and is going to drag him. Um, but it, it's hard for me to see anyone else in the West outside of the Warriors beating them because of LeBron, even with all their flaws. And I keep trying to, I mean, the rest of the roster is unremarkable. Uh, they, they're nice young players that they have stuff, but like, I, I just keep going back to that. I think they're going to be the team. Yeah, there's a very, very good shot of it. I mean, the other part with the Lakers is that they have more low-hanging fruit than almost any other team just in getting in terms of getting their rotation right. The Lakers will be a destination for buyout guys, right. whoever whoever gets available, and, all, and, and playing with LeBron. And also think about, I mean, LeBron James is now notorious for playing a lot harder in the playoffs than he does in regular season. And I'm sure some people use that to criticize him. I'm not going to. And that's just something we should acknowledge at this point. He'll care more about defense. He will take it to another level. And while I think this Lakers team is not perfectly suited for what he does well, I think they'll be a lot more in tune with that by April and May. And so, yeah, I would have them as the favorites to face the Warriors, assuming the bracket works out that way. I would agree with that. And no roster changes and all, all those qualifiers that are obvious, but, um, well, yeah. And, and, but even without that, I think that there's a lot that they can figure out. I mean, there, I still wonder, like basically one interesting question with them, and this will tie in with the guy who Luke Walton coached under in golden state. But when the chips come down, how comfortable is Luke Walton going to be playing whoever he thinks is the best five-man lineup? Because that is going to be the definitive question for the Lakers this year is, do personal politics come into this? Does Like, let's say, because he's the most obvious one, let's say Brandon Ingram just doesn't make sense in their closing lineup because he's, he's more of a reluctant shooter even though he can make some when he tries. And he he's more comfortable kind of with the ball in his hands and all that kind of stuff. Is Luke Walton empowered enough? Is he comfortable enough to whoever that player is to say, you're sitting on the bench. We need our best five out there. And I think he will be. I think he has that voice, but he's going to need it. And, you know, Steve Kerr didn't always do that. Like he He's always kind of a break glass in case of emergency guy. And Luke Walton probably is going to need to be more proactive on that because his team doesn't have the talent advantage that those Warriors teams did. I actually think Rondo is going to be the more interesting one. Um, oh, God. Because Yeah, that could be too. Because, like... I, for all Lonzo's faults, he does kind of allow LeBron to run the show and just kind of move the ball around him. And I mean, guys like Kuzma play just a lot better when it's Lonzo point guard than when you got like Rondo and LeBron both kind of dominating the ball and kind of everyone else has no room to breathe. Um, I don't know how they're going to do that because I don't know that Rondo's going to be cool with playing 18 minutes a game off the bench. I, yeah. don't, I, I don't know how Luke's going to handle that. Like that's a, that's a tough one. And their management clearly, I, I mean, they, my theory on it is they wanted Rondo to kind of push something out of Lonzo, which may or may not be the best strategy to go with that. But like either way, he's going to have to, it's going to be a tough conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Rondo is, a notoriously prideful guy and depending on who was the voice to bring him in there whether it was more magic or lebron or whoever else like that person will theoretically still be in his corner because the hard thing about rondo and there are there are players like this all around the league is that the people who support him 
understand the flaws in his game and so you can't really use those as a demerit on him because they're like yeah we know all that you know you're not you're not going to blow their mind with an argument because they're aware of it it's just that those things don't matter as much to them as they do to other people yeah and it doesn't i mean it's what what is their record since rondo got hurt it's i mean it hasn't it hasn't got worse that's for sure. So no, and I mean, and I think Lonzo is playing better. He's empowered. And the other thing that's frustrating about that from the Lakers' perspective is, you don't need to play a nominal point guard next to LeBron James because he's LeBron James. And all this stuff about oh, we want him to be off the ball more and all this stuff. That's not what LeBron wants. <laughs> like LeBron may say that from time to time, but he wants to run the show, just like almost every great player in the league. And you know that that includes Kevin Durant, I'm sure, and it definitely includes Steph Curry. And so. LeBron being the definitive best player on his team, there isn't anybody for him to defer to. So that idea that, oh, we need to bring in guys so he can play off ball, even though he's making more threes than he did when he was 25, that's still not his game. That's not LeBron. LeBron's the best passer of his generation. You want him to be able to pass the ball. Yeah, I I always felt like when LeBron makes those quotes, like, I want more playmakers, like what he's really saying is, when I pass the ball, I want people to make competent decisions. Like, he doesn't just want a bunch of spot-up shooters who literally can do nothing else. What he wants is, honestly, probably something like the Warriors, which is, you know, you pass it to someone, they'll shoot it, or they'll move it and make a smart decision. Um, I don't think he's necessarily dying to have, like, a 1990s-style point guard like Rondo just dribble in circles for 20 seconds and then pass the ball to someone. Yeah, I'm not really sure still. I mean, there are so many players who are bad general managers for themselves. Sure. I mean, Dwight, Dwight Howard's a great example of this, too, with I, I think it was Big Baby that he wanted in Orlando. And like there are a lot of those type of things of guys, who, even those who are really smart about basketball, right. who just kind of they maybe they have an idealized version of themselves or they're thinking about something else. It's just like at a certain point, you just kind of got to understand what you what you do well and what actually makes you happy. And it wouldn't surprise me, as smart as he is about basketball, and trust me, I've talked with LeBron about this stuff a little bit and, of course, heard him talk about it a, a long time and watched him play for his whole life. But that and identifying this is the right player to play with me is, is a very different thing. And it's funny that they got so many guys that are just, like, antagonists for him because some people, like, kind of identify with that of, like, oh, these are the guys I hated to play against. But that doesn't necessarily mean you want them with you. That just means you don't want to play against them. Yeah, it's um, it is kind of funny. It's like the um, like ghosts of Christmas past of all like the Eastern Conference um, irritants he had to deal with for like eight years. Um, but you you brought up the uh, KD wants to run the show more, and that was actually something I was going to bring up. So since Draymond's come back to the lineup and they've had the whole core four back together. Steph's been averaging four assists a game. Um, and it's been kind of a slow trend I've noticed over, well, starting mid last year and into this year, it's kind of the creeping disease of more going on with the Warriors. And it's kind of a classic thing for teams with a bunch of talent, in my opinion. And most people, when they hear disease of more, think it has to be some sort of like, you know, out and out brawl. But really, it's just kind of everyone trying to expand their role, in my opinion. I don't know if you're seeing it with the Warriors, but in my opinion, what I'm seeing is KD clearly wants to have a larger role in the offense, and that doesn't mean more shots. That means like just running more sets, being kind of the decision maker. Draymond knows that's like his calling card. Like he's he's an outright role player if he's not initiating the offense. And then you got Clay, who is leading the NBA in field goal attempts. 
clearly kind of trying to take as many shots as possible. Um, I don't know if it actually matters. I don't know if it's just a case of boredom in the regular season, but it does kind of feel like the Warriors that, you know, we knew with the ball movement and kind of just make the right play and everything has kind of moved away from that into a lot of guys with, I want to win, but I have an agenda to make sure I get my certain numbers. I think the problem on that point is that there's this idea that winning is the great disinfectant. And I agree with that for the most part. However, when you treat the victory as basically assured either way, it doesn't disinfect as much anymore. And so now they're saying they're going, well, we're going to win either way. I might as well, you know, try to get some shots up. And the regular season is such a grind for everybody. And it's a different grind if you're two. 20 and 60 as when you're 60 and 20 but it's still a lot of games you want to try things out and i'm sure also you get you know people in your life that are a voice in your ear like oh man you should be getting more shots you're such a good offensive player or like kevin durant you know as as well as he played without curry you know that he was maybe more on the periphery of the mvp conversation than he was comfortable with and then when steph came back not only all the love but like the shots and all that kind of stuff go to him and yeah i can imagine that and Every basically every player that is in the NBA was the best player on every team they were on until maybe college, and most of the best players in the NBA were the best player on their college team. And so it's a big adjustment to w- whether it's you go into the full extreme, like you're a, a total role player, or even you're the secondary or tertiary star. You've never been that before. Durant's a former MVP. I can imagine why that would be hard for him. And remember, the year he won the MVP was the year Russell Westbrook missed a bunch of time, and Reggie Jackson was his running mate point guard who was at that point i think a rookie or a sophomore and didn't have all of this reggie jackson in him though he had a lot of it then and i think that it it makes sense for durant to want more out of this and maybe i and i believe this that the chips will largely sort themselves out by the time the playoffs come around because at that point when the goal is to win a championship and really anything other than that is a failure of some sort i think by that point you're like okay you know we'll do what we need to do to win now but, you know, during the regular season, I don't think the Warriors necessarily see it that way that rigidly, you know, trying to get theirs, trying to do different things. And, you know, especially like this will come in certain points of the year, I think, like Draymond thinking about his defensive player of the year candidacy. And it's fortunate, though, that defensive player of the year is, you know, that's less of a zero sum game than right. offense sometimes. But you could imagine if he was gunning more for all NBA instead, that that could be really problematic, too, because guys who score as little as he does are rarely in consideration there. And so all of those things run in. But I want to give you one stat before I hand it back to you. This was I pulled this when I was doing a report card thing for The Athletic a few days ago, and it just cracked me up so much. And limited sample size, not making too much out of this. But if you take just the minutes when Clay plays without KD and Steph, his shot attempt rate is <laughs> the highest if you extrapolate it over full season and there are issues with that but you, you hopefully you people understand that his shot attempt rate is higher than any single season in nba history that includes <laughs> russell westbrook's mvp year that includes kobe's retirement year when he was taking everything like that it, it is ludicrous how many sh- like those times and some of that when they're not doing the stagger is necessity. You know, there isn't really anybody who do that, but part of it is that there isn't really anybody telling him no. And I think he's kind of cool with that. And so while clay is not a gunner, he isn't all those things. It's like, well, it's best for the team. I have the ball in my hands. I might as well. And so he kind of, he lets the, the, the person on the other side of his shoulder take over a little bit more. And, you know, he's not 
terribly inefficient at those shots. They're worse than what he does normally. Like, I cracked up that his true shooting in those circumstances is actually higher than Kobe and Russ in those seasons, just because he makes threes and three points are worth more than two. But it's remarkable. Yeah, I was going to say, the first thing I thought of was um, there was a similar stat for Kyrie when uh, LeBron was off the floor in those Cleveland years. He would take something in the realm of 28 shots per 36 minutes or something something in like the 2006 uh, Kobe range, you know, like something where it's just like an unfathomable usage. Um, uh, and, but th- then secondarily, yeah, it's like th- the funny thing is he's like the second or third best mid-range shooter in the NBA. Like the only guy who's better at mid-range shots than him objectively is Kevin Durant. So it's not like he's bad at him. It's just kind of not a shot you want to be relying on, and he takes a ton of them. Um, th- the thing I've been wondering is I can't tell – how much of it like actually irks Kerr or how much of it's him kind of knowing, you know, for some of these guys, it's year five Uh, for KD. It's year three. It's like, if I ride these guys about this stuff, about a game in December, you know, I'm going to lose them and that sort of thing. And like, just let them do what they want now and like slowly reel them in. Yeah. I think it's part that, and I think it's partially that even if he did go ballistic, what would it really do? You know, like these guys are so confident in their ability. They know what the stakes are. They know all this kind of stuff. And and that's the part of it that I think not for Durant, obviously, well, he had his own failings in 2016, but that 2016 really factors in is that these guys understand that their legacies, their own satisfaction is not tied to what happens in the regular season. I mean, I was there for exit interviews and I've, it's the only time I've ever gone. I went to exit interviews in 2016 after they lost that game seven and yeah, some of it is the immediacy of, you know, going right after you lost. I can't remember if it was the day after or two days, but they could not to, and this didn't seem like posturing. It seemed like genuine feeling that they could not like reflect on the historic nature of that year. They set the wins record. They went 73 and nine that year. And there's like, yeah, but we lost. And what that that leads to the like push in the playoffs and you know putting your egos aside and all those kind of positive things but it also leads to well if we went 73 and 9 and didn't feel really anything afterwards maybe 10 years from now or 20 years from now when they're telling their kids or they're going to autograph signings that will come up more but if if it if that didn't satisfy you then losing a couple extra regular season games won't haunt you either yeah and and that's really what it comes down to with them, um, I want to. What was the last thing I went into? Um, I guess so. There, in your opinion, there's really nothing to read into from any of these games, including the Christmas Day game against the Lakers with this with this team. It's just kind of slogging through, and only when you see either like a prolonged stretch of something looking off, or you know. Draymond screaming at Kevin Durant <laughs> in a Clippers game. Uh, Here, here's I mean, the here's the line: injuries or fistfights. That's really it. Like, okay. other than that, not not really. I mean, because the Warriors. What's what? The other thing that's so different with them is we don't have to think about this idea of will they flip the switch on defense because there's a pretty established threshold here. Also, I think you brought up this point on Twitter as well. The Warriors have a defensive rating of 100.7 when Draymond Green is on the floor. 
Right. So part of the reason that their defense is, I think they're middle of the pack overall for the year so far, is because Draymond Green has been on the floor less than you would expect. And some of those non-Draymond lineups have been awfully shaky for a bunch of different reasons. And Yeah, quit the Quinn Cook, Jerebko, pick and roll defensive coverage, not getting it done. No, <laughs> it, it generally doesn't. And so, yeah, I think that knowing knowing that this team has a complete understanding of what it takes and also knowing that there there are a lot of good teams in the west but as of right now there aren't any truly great teams so basically the most important thing they have to do is figure it out by like may 15th that's a lot of time and how if a team that that talented doesn't look great now i don't think it's anything particularly persuasive but what i would be looking at from that perspective of what what to see in the immediate is and I talked about this last year on Christmas Day, of which players look like they can hang in a big game, you know, like, so in that game, it was Jordan Bell. It was like, can Jordan Bell defend LeBron on a switch right. and all these type of things? And so Jordan Bell is a good question for that. Kevon Looney is a good question for that. But the guys that I'm most interested in, so if Warriors fans want to think of something in the next two months, it's can either Alfonso McKinney or Jonas Drebko look like they can play 10 to 15 minutes per game, even in the conference finals and beyond. And if either one of those guys can, if the Warriors stay healthy, they're, they're in really, really good shape. Like that would be a massive change for them. If they could get something from either one of those guys, if they can't survivable, they're still a really good team, but that will be the biggest difference maker. And I mean, eventually the same question will be there with DeMarcus cousins, but there are so many other questions with him that it kind of falls by the wayside, even though you can make an argument that can he hang in a Western Conference Finals or an NBA Finals is actually the most important one of those million questions. Yeah, I mean, based on the the grainy footage that's come out right now, I mean, he doesn't doesn't look great. But um, I mean, it's also December and practice footage from Santa Cruz, so not really going to read too much into that. Um, I'd agree with that. I'm actually. On that note, that makes me more excited for the Christmas Day game for the Lakers side because, I mean, you know Le- LeBron's going to be LeBron, but I'm curious which players, um, which of their young players uh, kind of step up, look like they can – because none of them have been in the playoffs. I want to see which of those guys maybe have a chance to be like a serious piece for them going forward. Yeah, and remember, I mean, it's been a long time for other fan bases, but – these Lakers guys like Ingram and Lonzo and all that, this is going to be the biggest professional game they've ever played in. Like, you know how amazing that is? It's a it's a day a game in December, but they haven't really played with real stakes. They're on it, you know, it's national TV stage, all that kind of stuff. It's Christmas. It's as day. close as you can get to a playoff game without it being the playoffs. Yeah. And so that will be fun. And, you know, like do certain guys just chuck up a bunch of shots or do they, you know, try to showboat or anything else? Or will they be kind of scared into submission by LeBron and all that kind of stuff like that? Yeah, that's going to be really fun. And who who shines in that moment, who plays harder, who plays smarter, all those sorts of things are going to be really, really fun. And I mean, that is I mean, from the Lakers perspective, the most important thing for them this year is not how far they make it in the playoffs or anything like that. It's evaluating which of these players can hang in a big series, even if the talent on the Lakers is meaningfully different. Who knows who they get in the in the offseason? Could be trade, could be free agency, whatever. But if they can't hack it, they're probably going to be gone. Wherever, what, however that happens, they're going to be gone. And so it's going to be so much fun to see 
who who really fits that and it's especially going to be fun to see how the lakers fan base reacts to that because they're probably thinking the same thing too yeah i didn't even think about it from that perspective but it's um one of their young players is going to have a good game against the, I mean, I'm assuming at least one of them will. And whoever. Oh, it's going to be great. They're going to turn on somebody and somebody's going to get deified. Like, yeah. the, it is it is a virtual <laughs> certainty that both of those things are going to happen. And with the uncertainty involving those players, I have no idea who it's going to be. You know, like, it, it, maybe yeah, Brandon I can talk Ingram myself drops 25. Into one of them. Yeah. Both ways. Or you could see Josh Hart like take 10 threes and miss all of them. You know, like it could go in a mill or like the Warriors, like Draymond is guarding Lonzo and just leaves him for like 10 possessions and he misses like six threes. And the Lakers fans are just like, or, we can't, we can't play him. Like we, you know, like all those or, sorts of Or things. out of it's the blue, Lonzo has one of his, he had one tonight, one of those like, you know, five for eight from three nights. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's, he's, he's a clutch player. Don't, don't look at that 25% from the field or whatever he's shooting. Yeah, he's he's there. He's the he's the running mate. You know, he's the new Kyrie or whatever, however else they want to do. He's better than Kyrie because Kyrie can't pass like Lonzo. That sort of thing. Yeah, it'll be um, it'll be interesting from that from that perspective. Um, okay, Danny, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, next time we have you on, I'll have Andy here to stir the pot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yo, you it'll, be, it'll, you be plug? Ta- it'll be weird talking to Andy at some time other than the Warriors completing a sweep because when I had locked on Warriors back in 2017, we did that podcast every single time. That was fun. Um, and then that silly game against the Cavs that lost it. So we didn't get to do it for all four playoff series, <laughs> which would have been hilarious. And uh, yeah, stuff to plug. So I have report cards, which are in the athletics app after every game. They're like, I get really in depth because I don't know how to do anything else. And then I have pieces for them. I have a DeMarcus Cousins ones, actually, that's coming out in the next couple days. How I'm thinking about, I'm calling it the DeMarcus Cousins experiment, like, because there are a lot of different things that we're going to learn about him and about the team, because it's just so different from anybody they've ever had in this era. And so I'm really excited about that. And then Dunked On, you know, podcast I do with Nate Duncan five times a week. And Real Jam Radio is my solo interview podcast, national, that is once a week. All right, Danny. Thanks. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.